Hello, Nathan here from the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. I'm so excited to share this episode with you, a conversation with Damien Hughes. Now, we all appreciate how important culture is in business, but few people have studied it and applied their thinking as deeply as Damien. He's a professor in organizational psychology and change and a consultant on culture for both elite sport teams and big organizations. He's also the author of numerous books on the topic. His most recent, The Barcelona Way, How to Create a High Performance Culture, takes a look at how the winning cultural formula Pep Guardiola employed during his time in charge at the club can be applied to the world of business. There's so many interesting ideas and actionable tips from Damien in this episode. I hope you find it really valuable. Enjoy the show. Damien, thank you so much for uh, finding the time to do this. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on it. Been looking forward to it for a while since we uh, originally spoke, so thanks for the invitation. No worries. Uh, I just wanted to start by asking you the question which we kick off all our episodes with, and that is, what's the wrong you want to write? <laughs> it's a brilliant question. Um, I think the wrong that I would like to write is getting people to understand how powerful culture can be and how it can be used as a competitive advantage within whatever world that we operate in. So the phrase culture is quite an abstract term when people, if you go and ask a hundred people what their definition of culture is, you'll get a hundred different responses to it. So I'm really passionate about helping establish a common language for what culture is. And a more helpful question is what type of culture do you have? But then more importantly about how can you then harness the power of culture to your advantage so that you create an environment where people can perform to their potential, where they can flourish and blossom and then deliver exceptional results in whatever industry it is that you're that you're working in or that you're operating in. Really interesting. Very well, very well put. And I guess you've been working in this space for a long time. Um, I guess for the context uh, for listeners, can you explain what your role is as a professor and I guess what that means in a sort of academic sense but then also in a professional environment as well yeah yeah so um, I'm a visiting professor now at Manchester Met University but uh, my background is in organizational psychology and change so it's very much around looking at how do you create high performing teams and in particular the cultures that underpin them and then just as importantly, how do you develop them to be strong enough so that and robust enough that they can adapt and respond to the changes that happen around them? So um, what I also do is I, I work across a wide range of organisations um, from business through to education, through to elite sport, working with teams and more personally, the leaders of those teams to help them understand the power of it and then harness it. And then the third job I do is I've been lucky enough to write a few different books around these topics where uh, I've been able to go into some quite interesting worlds and find some quite interesting stories that help just to illustrate and accentuate uh, the messages as well. And I mean, I discovered you and we discovered you as part of the, the book club community through your most recent book, The Barcelona Way, Yeah, uh, which I read over Christmas. Fantastic oh, read. Thank you. It was almost a nice time to read it as well because it was kind of a nice break from work to kind of reflect on where we'd, where we'd got to and reflect yeah. on what was kind of coming up. Um, and I kind of want to dive into various different ideas from, from that book throughout the episode. Sure. I guess 
first of all there, and I guess another important piece of context which I've heard you speak about before is how should we understand the world of sport versus the world of, of, of business? Where should we draw parallels and where shouldn't we maybe draw parallels? It's a brilliant question, Nathan. Um, I urge anybody listening to this podcast or anyone uh, that is taking these ideas outside into the wider world, be very, very careful of anyone that comes along and labours the metaphor of sport and business. Um it's an easily done metaphor where you talk about ever working together for a common goal and things like that. But I think be careful of it for two reasons. I think there's two huge um, areas where sport and business don't align. The first one is I've seen um, some of the kind of conducts and behaviours that happen within a sporting environment are just completely abnormal from what the corporate world would allow. What do I mean by that? Well, I've seen sort of bullying happen, but can be legitimised as part of the physical nature of a sport. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to smash somebody to make a point in training, you will have the opportunity to do that and it would look legitimate, even though you know why it would happen. So there's behaviours like that that just are unacceptable, quite rightly, in the corporate world. And the second thing as well is the punitive nature of sport means that you, you have... Um, access to those tools a lot more readily you can drop a player from a game which feels like a punishment you can sell somebody you can terminate their contracts at the end of um, a season and things like that now employment law doesn't allow us to do that so in the corporate world you might be working with difficult characters but they might have been there a long time and they have the protection of employment law quite rightly that means that you can't just get rid of them in the same way so I think those two differences uh, mean that the metaphor of sport and business often falls down. Where I think there are an awful lot of parallels, though, uh, saying that, is around the people element. So, say, for example, with the Barcelona book, when people said, uh, I don't like football, they say, no, no, that's fine, but it's not a football book, it's a book about people, yeah. but just in this case happen to work within football. And it's the people element that I think is um, is a rich area for us to try and understand in terms of engagement, teaching skills of coping under pressure, how do you develop an organisation where people can flourish yet still work within frameworks, all of that kind of stuff um, is is common to sport, business and education. And... I guess in the in the early part of the book, before you focus in on the commitment culture, which you argue is the sort of most most powerful yep. form of culture, you kind of outline a few different other modes of culture as well, a, a star model, an engineering model. That's right, yeah. Could you give a, a sort of explanation around what, what those are? And I guess, I guess it will be interesting for people to try and reflect on what their company, where their company fits on that spectrum. Yeah, so it's recent, so... In the world of organisational psychology, the, the culture is, is one of the, or has been traditionally, one of the great under-researched areas in many ways. And there was a couple of guys from Stanford University called Baron and Hannan that used to lecture that culture could be a competitive advantage when people said, where's the evidence? The reality was that it was relatively little. So these two guys in the early 1990s went into Silicon Valley, and given the close proximity to Stanford, it made sense. But there was also, it was almost like a, um, it was a perfect environment to test these theories out because there was a whole heap of startup businesses and things like that that were grateful for the, uh, the research interest. 
And what they went and looked at was these startup businesses in terms of what type of culture emerged when people just allowed it to happen organically, what happened. And what was initially intended to be a two-year study ended up lasting for nearly 25 years as they tracked these different businesses. And what they found was, traditionally, there are five cultures that tend to emerge if you just allow this to happen organically. So the first type of culture is a style model. And this is where you basically have a team that goes out of his way to recruit the most talented people they can afford. They pay them the highest salaries they can. They give them the finest facilities. And then you almost just sit back and wait for all that talent in the room to come together and deliver phenomenal results. So in the research, Google is an outlier for an organization that does this because when it goes well, what the evidence says is it'll go spectacularly well. But what it blinds us to is when it goes wrong, it'll go badly wrong. Now, part of the reason we chose Barcelona as a model to go and look at in terms of culture was a big reason is because there's lots of comparable teams competing in the same industry as them. Yeah. So Real Madrid offer you a textbook example of a star model. So since 2003, they've had a president in place called Florentino Perez that, that adopted what, what we know today as their Galactico model, which is about recruiting the world's best players. And I think they offer you a great example that they've won three consecutive Champions Leagues, which hasn't been done in that industry for a long time, but they've not won the league uh, more than three times in the last 15 years either, mm-hmm. which is also the longest barren period. And there was a great quote from one of the coaches at Real Madrid that it's called Diego Lopez that said, the trouble with the star culture is everyone wants to be the head waiter, but nobody wants to wash the dishes. Yeah. And it's that idea of it's often the back of house stuff that will derail you. So that's the first type of culture that listeners might identify with. Yeah. The second type of culture you get is an autocracy. And this is where in the Baron and Hannon research, this is where it was often, they cited like a, a charismatic founder of a business, or it might be a powerful chief exec. And it tends to be that they almost run it as a fiefdom. It's my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. So they dictate the culture and, uh, and their whims and peccadilloes come to the fore. So a great example of that would be, if you think about Apple under the first incarnation of Steve Jobs. So him and um, Steve Wozniak, when they founded it, they built the business up. And then when he was kicked off the board in the 90s, the share price fell off a cliff because the vacuum that was left behind led to a whole heap of confusion and dysfunction. Yeah, everyone was just bought into their his vision. Yeah, very much. And then when he came back, he reignited and brought that 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 sort of laser-like focus to it. Mm. Again, football offers you a great example. You think of like some of the oligarchs like Roman Abramovich that bought Chelsea. You think of Manchester United under Alex Ferguson. And since he retired in 2013, the vacuum left by his absence yeah. has been pretty stark in terms of the dysfunction that's followed. The third type of culture you get is a bureaucracy, and this is where it's about middle managers running the show. So this is where there's like a thick level of managers that rule the roost by policies, procedures, rules, and regulations. Mm -hmm. When you make a decision, you tend to do it by committee and consensus. Rather than doing the right thing, you do the thing that's right for most people. And what the evidence says in bureaucratic cultures is change happens, but it, it tends to be slow, ponderous, and quite reactive as opposed to proactive okay the fourth type of culture is an engineering culture and an engineering culture isn't about engineering per se it's about when you bring in people that have got a technical expertise in a topic 
So you bring in somebody that might be a subject matter expert and what you and then you add all those pieces up and you hope the cumulative effect is greater than the uh, uh, than the parts. The flow with cultures like this though is that you often get um, people creating their own little fiefdoms where you get a lot right. of silo mentality, people defending their knowledge base and yeah. not necessarily respecting knowledge of others as well. So that can feel quite a um, a silo culture. The final culture that we're going to discuss here, though, is a, a commitment culture. And a commitment culture is an organisation or a team that has a really clear, compelling sense of purpose. Why do we exist? It defines success on its own terms in terms of what success looks like, and then they have a really clear set of behaviours that underpin this is how people are expected to conduct themselves. Now, what was interesting in Baron and Hannon's research on this was that one of the first appointments of organisations that pursued a commitment culture was an HR was an HR department. Right. So it was about putting people very much at the heart of their decision making. Now, what was fascinating was over the twenty five years they tracked this, what they found is that on most of the big measures like speed to market, market share, profitability, turnover all the things that we consider important for a business, commitment cultures tended on average to outperform those other four types by around 22%. There was some other okay. research done by a guy called Paul Zak that suggested in commitment cultures where there's high levels of trust that are created, people stay loyal to commitment cultures even when they're offered pay rises of around 36% to go somewhere else. So the so, benefits are potentially huge. Massive. And the way I often try and explain it to people when we get into this discussion of it is to say, think of a commitment culture as that intersection where doing good and actually being good meet in the middle. And as you say, Nave, the, 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 the positive effects of this, of investing in, in, in culture, are huge. And is it the case that you could sort of pick elements from some of those models and elements from others or is that a dangerous game to play no i don't think it is i think what you'll find is that in lots of organizations there'll be pockets of different types of cultures but there will always be one overriding culture there has to be and until that can happen what you sometimes get is if you've got different pockets of culture they clash so you'll get a lot of internal politicking you'll get a lot of misunderstandings you'll get a lot of um of, of sort of dissatisfaction until one culture will override. That's where I think the conversation is far better suited. So rather than somebody saying we've got a good culture, a bad culture, a toxic culture, a high performing culture, let's get rid of some of these phrases and start talking about we have a commitment culture, we have a autocratic culture, and whatever it is, we have a clear understanding of it. It means that we have a very different and far more productive conversation. That plays into the word itself, right? The word commitment is almost like you've got to take that step and go, we're going in this direction because we believe it's the right thing to do. Bingo. That's a really that's a really astute point, Dave, because the etymology of the word commitment, if you look at it, it implies choice. You don't sleepwalk into a commitment culture. You don't find yourself there by accident wondering yeah. what happened. You've made a very deliberate choice that you want to be a part of something. And that's why I think when you decide that that's what you're going to go after, the obligation on leaders that decide that this is the route they're going to pursue has to be you need to be you need to remove ambiguity from people. If you're going to ask people to make a choice, 
your job is to be really clear as to what you're asking them to sign up to. And that's where having those clear sense of behaviours, if you come in here, this is what we expect of you. You allow people to make a choice with their eyes wide open rather than it becoming subjective or, or reactive. When it comes to the behaviours then, I found this quite interesting because I think like when you look at the sort of typical business world, businesses tend to be very good at saying this is our vision, this is our mission, these yeah. are our values. And it seems like often they fall a step short of saying, well, this is how we actually deliver on those values. These are our behaviours. But maybe the sporting world is almost the, the mission, at least, is probably very clear. But the behaviours are something which are like daily. Kind things, of, but yeah. But, they, but I, I think, again, it's a really interesting observation that I think what the language... So some people would argue this is just semantics i'd say well it's not because i think when you talk about values for example when we say what are our organizational values values by its definition is an abstract term mm. value and values are deep personal and intrinsic to us they're relevant to us and they've been established and inculcated in us through our family our experiences our schools our our, our our life before we join a business. Yeah. They're, they're, that's where your values come from. So when you hear an organization come up with some bland abstract values like, oh, we value integrity, you go, well, who's arguing for the opposite? Hmm. If you think of what the opposite is of being two-faced or, or disingenuous, you go, well, who's arguing for that? So, yeah. so arguing about behaving with integrity is almost self-evident. But the bit that where the or the danger of stopping your thinking by going oh yeah we've got a value now of integrity is is how does that translate into action because your behaviors should be your values in action mm -hmm. how you behave should be a representation of what of what your values are but if you only say oh we we insist on having the value of integrity the only obligation of anyone in your business has to be is to nod and go yeah i feel the same way but a behaviour says, prove it. Yeah. Now demonstrate it. Now demonstrate that you behave with integrity. Go and tell that client that you're going to overspend. Go and explain to your colleagues why they're not going to get a budget and or a bonus this year. Go and do that because that would demonstrate integrity in action. Yeah, and, yeah, completely. And that's why I think in commitment cultures, you need to go to that next step that says, this is how you're expected to behave and this isn't going to be compromised. And I guess before you could get to those behaviours, the first part of the the, the Barca uh, acronym that you use in the book is the big picture. Um, how should an organisation try and, if they don't already know the big picture, try and identify what the big picture should be for their organisation or for their for their team, perhaps? Well, the big picture is is the why, the what, and the how. So this is you, you need to be able to answer all of these questions. So why do you exist? And what I've tried to do there is just, so at Barcelona, they've got a geopolitical context. They, be they believe that Catalonia was subjugated by wider Spain. They lost their independence in, the seven in 1719. So it's not without coincidence that in the 17th minute and 19th second of every game they play at home, the fans rise and chant for Catalan mm. independence. So their sense of purpose, they often refer to themselves as the army of Catalonia, is pretty well established. Now, for those businesses or owners that are listening to this and go, well, we don't have that same sense of geopolitical um, issues that we could uh, yeah. rail against. 
I think there's ways in which you can do it. You can uh, you can talk about what impact do you make on people's lives. So there's kind of universalization. What is the quality of your product that you do? What difference do you make to your industry? What are the values that you want to espouse that nobody else is doing? There's still a way you can just articulate. Well, why do you exist? If you didn't exist, what would be the purpose of it? Yeah. So like Jim Collins in the Good to Great stuff is a good example of it. He says, what's your core and your strategy is your manifestation of that? So the example he uses in Good to Great is he says, if you think of Nokia, Nokia started life as a paper mill in oh, Finland okay. and then they went through a whole really? heap of different variations of making telephone wires before they eventually settled on the mobile phone industry but the Nokia core is if you remember the old Nokia phone when you used to turn it on and it was those hands together yeah, it was yeah. connecting people so if you look at what Nokia have done since when people connected writing letters they were a paper mill then when it was te- the telephone they were making the telephone wires then when mobile technology came in, they were still connecting people. That sense of purpose runs throughout everything that they do. So having that big picture can open you up to a bigger future almost rather than being something which defines a set path. Yeah, very much. So I remember talking to a friend of mine that worked in, he was in a retail jewellers, but he said, I'm not in the jewellery business. I'm in the business of enriching people's lives. And his point was, if the yeah. if the retail jewelry business went went under tomorrow, he said, I'd open an old person's home, or I'd go and dig wells in Africa. I'd still go and enrich people's lives. I'd just find a different strategy to execute my purpose. The bit that underpins that is the what. Well, what does success mean for you? Yeah. And I think what's interesting in our world here is that we often define success in really tangible terms. It's always about how much money do you make? What's your profit? What's your turnover? And whilst that's important, this isn't to discount it. Again, I'd go back to Jim Collins' stuff. He says, we need to get away from this either or. We either make a difference or we make a profit. And we instead get into the both and. We can can both make a difference and make a profit as well. So this was what at Barcelona, again, it was interesting because they... um, define themselves in terms of trophies won and things like that and in the 1970s they brought in a Dutch footballer called Johan Cruyff who was a real maverick thinker he was regarded as the best in the world so he was credible as well and when he arrived he very quickly diagnosed Barcelona was suffering from a condition he described as madriditis he said you're constantly measuring yourself against your biggest rivals and anything they do you react Mm. And his point was a simple but powerful one. He said, you can't be successful if you have the mentality of a victim. Define success on your terms, not on anyone else's. Yeah. Which is why Barcelona are defined by this idea of we play stylish, attacking football with a flair and a panache and ruin trophies as well. Yeah. So what's really good about them is, or what's interesting about them is, just even recently, they sacked their head coach, a guy called Ernesto Valdevelda. Yeah. Who... By any definition, he's won their league and a cup in the two seasons that he's been in charge. But he's not played it with the style and the flair that they expected. So they've got rid of him to bring in somebody that can both deliver the success and the trophy and do it in a style as well. I mean, 
it's interesting that you say obviously you think about Barcelona now and you default to thinking um, amazing successful club but it's not always been the case and you kind of talk about in the book how you describe that the arc of change that yes. things, things aren't it's not a route of A to B of going becoming successful and I guess yeah what what, what what's your take on how, how do you how, how do you identify where you are on that arc of change perhaps and how do you adapt to different situations well the arc of change is a quote that um it really resonated with me i i I read it from martin luther king and martin he was talking about the civil rights movement of course but he was talking about the arc of change follows a true path it's a consistent path but it might sometimes feel long and confusing but it will still follow that same path Mm -hmm. so it's worth it just understanding well what is it and it was um Joseph Campbell, who was a famous sociologist, he went around some of the most diverse cultures in the world asking the question, what unites us rather than what divides us? Yeah. And what he came across was that one of the common understandings of all humanity is um, the pattern of change, which Martin Luther King described as the arc of change. Now, most people haven't heard of Joseph Campbell. He produced a seminal book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces which was his his response to this. But most people have heard of his most famous student's work, George Lucas. Yeah. So George Lucas took Campbell's work and his obvious manifestation is in Star Wars and part of the universal success of Star Wars is the arc of change. Mm. So the reason I mention that is it sometimes just helps people to demystify what we're talking about. And there's five stages of change. The first stage of change is the dream bit. This is where we get everyone fired up and excited or at the start of the business, we get we get excited about how amazing things are going to be. The leap stage is that commitment, that move towards a commitment that says, now I'm going to do something different tomorrow than what I did today. Yeah. Then we meet the messy middle. This is the fight stage. And the fight stage is the bit where everything starts to go wrong because the middle bit is where you're too far to go back, but you're not far enough to get to the right. end. So morale declines, despondency sets in. Now, traditionally, in most football clubs, Nathan, that's where they sack the head coach. And they go back to the start, and they can stay in those first three stages for decades. Yeah, it seems like a lot of clubs get stuck just in the messy middle. (laughs) Very much. So when things go wrong, sack the coach, bring somebody else in, it gets you all excited, and they'll hit the same cultural problems Mm. themselves. So you sack them and bring somebody else in. You need to get through the messy middle. When you get through that, you'll see seeds of progress, which is the fourth stage of change where progress starts to happen. It'll only be small and it'll be fleeting, but you have to spot them. And then once you build on that momentum, you'll get to the arrival stage and the process starts again. So when we understand that those five stages are consistent in any change that we do, we say, first of all, that's a helpful guide. It's like a map to understand where we are at any stage. But there's a really interesting exercise you can do by, there's a psychologist called Gary Klein suggests this. He, he calls it the pre-mortem. So before you set off on your journey, conduct a pre-mortem and a pre-mortem says, what could kill this initiative? Yeah. What's all the problems that we're likely to face? And if you take the time to invest in answering those questions, what the evidence suggests is you improve resilience when you hit the messy middle by about 30%. Because okay. if you know the problems are going to come, you've anticipated some of them, you welcome them as a sign of progress rather yeah. than see them as a warning sign that things are going wrong. And there's a couple of interesting bits in this for me, one of which you 
you talk about in the book is like the storytelling that becomes really important when you think about this. Yeah. And that um, I guess leaders in particular being able to draw people back to as you say the big picture but the journey that they're on and I think there's some great stories in the book about how um, the the stories that Pep Guardiola used to retell for example to his team just yeah. to reinforce the, yeah, their so, journey so the, the, the lady called Nancy Duarte talks about this in terms of she talks about the different symbols of storytelling uh, you can have ceremonies it might be like a Friday night's drink something mm. like that that's the end of a tough week or dress down Friday things like that you have um, symbols that indicate where you are at any stage um, as, as as just some of the factors but storytelling is a really powerful skill for, for leaders so the example I use in the book is that uh, Pep Guardiola brought in uh, a guy that had survived the ch- so if you remember the film Alive yeah, yeah. about the, um, the plane crash yeah the plane crash I think it was the Argentinian team that crashed into a mountain and yeah. they survived um, the crash and all came out of it. And Guardiola brought in one of the survivors from that to come and talk to the players and just tell his story. And part of the reason he'd done it was that they then had a, had a metaphor for the arc of change. So this guy was telling them about the despondency and how at one stage it was just about putting one foot in front of the other to go and search for, search for help and things like that. So he was using examples from outside his football club to illustrate everybody goes through this we're now going to set off on this journey so let's prepare ourselves for that messy middle bit yeah and give people the sense of it so storytelling is one of the great underrated virtues of of leaders that want to create a culture stories are like where you where you find examples of people demonstrating the behaviors you want and you make heroes of those people Mm. you celebrate them you know, I, many years ago, I went into um, Southwest Airlines in Baltimore. And what was really interesting there is they're often cited as a great example of an organizational culture that just allows people to thrive. And on their walls, they had a really interesting concept called an eat crow wall. Now, that's an American phrase. I hadn't heard oh, it before, okay. but eat crow means it's like a cock up or a mistake. Okay. And they had a wall dedicated to cock ups that their staff had made. which was interesting and when I said to them why do you have that they said well one of our key behaviours is we ask people to um, solve problems we say to people use your initiative and solve problems if you see a problem on the job just deal with it there and then don't scale it up to you just tackle it if you can and they said so if we're asking people to solve problems what we have to accept is sometimes they get it wrong so how we deal with the failure of them taking the initiative themselves is key so if we hammer somebody or we bury that mistake that they've made, what we do is cr- we create a culture of fear. So nobody will ever uh, make a mistake again, but equally they'll never take a risk either. It's quite interesting. To solve a problem. Whereas if we make heroes of them and celebrate yeah. the mistakes in a way that isn't making fun of people, it makes them realize you did the right, you, your intent was right, the execution was wrong, but yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You create an environment where people feel safe enough to go, oh, I'll, I'll try it then. It's quite interesting because uh, someone a while ago created a, a good work channel in our in our Slack, our, right. our company Slack, where people can celebrate each other for doing good work. Yeah. Um, and it was really interesting. Lots of good stories. Um, then someone created a shit work channel. 
yeah. as well, which was like, this is about sharing when something you've done hasn't gone right or when Don't you've it. made a mistake, when you've caught up, I guess, in a similar way. Because it's like there's a lot to learn by looking at those things, but then it's also a case of encouraging people to actually be pushing themselves and it's okay not to... Yeah, it's brilliant. I, I had a mate who was a teacher and uh, he... In, when he got into sort of his first leadership thing, when he used to have departments, I used to say, make it a bit of fun, but have the Mistake Club. Yeah, so yeah. in one of your team meetings, have a, a session called the Mistake Club where you talk about your cock-ups that week. And he was like, what do you do that for? So because what you're doing is if you can take the lead with that, it creates a sense of safety where people go, oh, I had that as well. Mm. So you help to solve a problem, but equally you create a culture of psychological safety where you're not afraid of making a mistake. Yeah. You're not worried about the consequences of getting laughed at or lambasted or punished because your intent was right. The execution didn't go as well. So mistake clubs or shit work channels, yeah, however yeah. you want to do it, or eat crow walls, are powerful ways of telling stories. So it's not just the successes, it's the things that didn't go well. And why didn't they go well? You frame this in your book when you talk around, when you talk about how to identify the behaviours, you... You mentioned an idea of analysing when you've done a good job, when are we good? Yeah. And, yeah, could you talk a little bit around that and how, how you how Yeah, you so I, 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 I dubbed this exercise that, that I do with teams, success leaves clues. And the reason I talk about that is that what this helps us avoid is gimmickry. So one of the big things to people that want to sort of invest time in culture is don't copy and what I mean by don't copy is, I, I hear lots of people say, like, use sport as an example. So the New Zealand Rugby Union team are a great example where they famously sweep their dressing rooms after every game. Yeah. And I've gone into so many teams that they go, oh, we sweep our dressing rooms after the game. And you go, why? And you say, well, New Zealand do it. And you go, yeah, I know, I know they do it and I know why they do it. I'm asking, why do you do it? And if your only explanation is because New Zealand do, you're copying. Yeah. You've got a gimmick and... A gimmicks don't work. People see through them. New Zealand do it because it enforces a, a behaviour of respect for their environment and for yeah. each other. So I get that. They've got a clear line of, uh, of sight of why they do it. So you avoid gimmickry. And that's where I think the exercise of success leaves clues, allows us to avoid that. So the question I like to get people to ask is, when you're good, why are you good? Tell me... So. Think of examples where it might be your best ever client meeting. It might be your best quarter's results. It might be the best project you've ever delivered. It doesn't matter what 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 the area of success is. Let's yeah. just go to success and find out and let's do a proper deep dive analysis as to why are you good. Now, there's a couple of reasons why success leaves clues is a nice place to start on this cultural journey. First of all, who doesn't want to talk about success? Who doesn't want to sort of shine a light on that and feel a bit better for yeah. it? And then secondly, it's inclusive. So everybody has got an opinion on it. So when you start to do that, what will emerge in answering the question is, beyond technical skills, it will then start to become behavioural-led. People say, oh, we were enthusiastic, we were passionate, we were really responsive, we really listened. Whatever the behaviours are, you will start to distill some consistently present behaviours from that successful occasion, mm. that's these starts become your trademark behaviours. Because if you can identify what they're like, what that allows you to do is, every team is going to have a bad day. Every team's going to make mistakes. Every team is going to fall occasionally. 
The difference between a good team and a great team is good teams can fix it a lot quicker. What bad teams do is they immediately blame external factors. Yeah. So when they have a bad day, they go in sports, they'll go, oh, the referee was no good. The conditions were no good. The crowd was against us. They make up external factors. What great teams can do is when they underperform, they go, we weren't quick enough. We weren't intense enough. Our focus wasn't that. And it's all internal behaviours. It becomes a method of diagnosis, essentially. Well, it allows you to correct it a lot quicker yeah. and therefore do it. So, But you can only diagnose it by analysing what your success looks like in the first place. What advice would you give to someone who's kind of doing... Can, can anyone take on that mantle of being like, I'm going to try and identify when we're good? How would you, What advice would you give to someone who kind of thinks it's an important thing for their company to do, but they'd be like, where do I... Where do I start is it my job to do it it's everybody's job it's everybody's job to influence a culture um because we all play our part in doing it so if there's anyone listening to this that thinks i'm not sure i have the authority or the remit to do it i think the success leaves clues is a really good place to jump into it where you just say can we just do an analysis of our of what we're like when we're good so that way you can almost codify it so then when it comes to about recruiting other people or inducting people or when it comes to rewarding and recognising people, you're doing it through the behaviours that everybody's played their part in identifying are present when when success yeah, yeah. is happening. When it comes to people then, probably one of my favourite parts of the book is around cultural architects. Yeah. Um, can you define a cultural architect? The phrase comes from a famous Norwegian psychologist called Willy Raylo. He's passed away now, but he was a guy that talks about cultural architects. These are the people, they're leaders without authority. These are the people that when they speak, people listen. Mm-hmm. Now, traditionally, a cultural architect, so they don't necessarily have the title of being a leader, but people do look up to them. Yeah, And the traditional criteria for... Uh, the emergence of a cultural architect is one or two, two. The first way they emerge is often technical. So they're just really good at their job. They just really know what they're talking about. Yeah. They might have been around a long time or they're just skilled at it. So when they speak, people tend to pay deference to them. The second criteria that emerges is sometimes they're socially gregarious. So when they speak, people just really like them and warm to them or are attracted to to, uh, to them as people so they tend to be one of the two criteria that emerge now the key for a cultural architect is do they then demonstrate and defend and role model the trademark behaviours because if they do they become architects because they can role model and they and if they see other people not demonstrating they can challenge they can just pull them into line and they have the credibility where they get listened to and people adhere to it. If they don't, you've got cultural assassins on your hands. Right. So if they go against it, but they have that charisma or that that power, they can undermine a culture. And how much of it is nature versus nurture than something like a cultural architect? Is it that some people, potentially, as you say, if they're just naturally gregarious, they're going to naturally fall into that kind of position? Or can you... Can you coach cultural architects out of the out of a team? Yeah, you can definitely coach them. So the nature nurture debates and really interesting uh, area to get into. But I think um, 
it's one of the great unanswered questions of psychology, how much is nature and how much is nurture. And the reality is nobody knows. The debate tends to range between 10 and 40% of our behavior is 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 natural to us as part of our what we would class as personality. Yeah. But what that what nobody is disputing is the vast majority of our behaviours are learned behaviours. So by definition, if you've learned them, you can unlearn them. So right. this is where this leads us into my answer to the question of it can be coached. Because if you set the the rules of the game up, which are around behaviours, everyone can demonstrate behaviours. So I'll give you an example. I did some work a few years ago with a uh, a Premier League team. And if you'd have looked at it as an outsider, David, and said, right, who are your cultural architects here? There were some very evident ones. I'd say, if you, in a dressing room like that, you need at least five. Right. And there was three very evident characters that were larger-than-life charismatic people that bought into the behaviours. There was another guy that was technically very good, wasn't as maybe charismatic, but he bought into the behaviours. He became the fourth one. The fifth one was an outlier completely. So he was a guy that was very much perceived as an outsider. But when we laid the lens of behaviours over it, he became one of the standout characters. And when I asked one of his teammates, because it was a real surprise, his answer was really telling. He said, you didn't ask whether I liked him. You asked whether... He demonstrated the behaviours. Mm. So behaviours suddenly brought a greater clarity to it. This was a guy that was sort of... The, the, the three behaviours in this particular team, they were looking at uh, sensible hard work. They were looking at somebody that was a real team player and somebody that was resilient. And this guy was all of those things. Socially, he was a bit clumsy and clueless, but he demonstrated those behaviours in real stark terms. So... I think if you were looking at developing cultural architects, a nice exercise that I do when, if you're going into a situation where the pressure is on and you need to find them quickly, first of all, you've got the behaviours in play. Get people to vote. Just do a private vote. Give in, a, in, say, a sports team, what I would do is give the whole squad two votes each to say, tell me who are your two standout characters that demonstrate these behaviours. And that's where it becomes really interesting. People yeah. will tell you, and it'll often be completely, or not completely, but it it can occasionally surprise you as to who these architects really are. And I guess if you've defined those behaviours, that then lets people see leadership in a different way than not just the default, oh, they're the leader because they speak the loudest or they have the most friends. It starts to put a different um, framework around it that it's like oh our leaders are the ones who actually deliver on what we believe in yeah exactly so you get away from this idea of the alpha is somebody that speaks loudest or delivering churchillian speeches or they're doing great symbolic gestures this is the quiet this also allows room for the alternative like you say the quiet guy the guy that just leads by example the guy Mm. that's coaching in the shadows that's where you get a very different definition of leader that starts to emerge in something like this. And this is where, like, another thing that it allows you to do as well is that it, for the cultural architects then, when you give them permission to do it, what you're, a, a big thing that you're saying is you're not getting into personality clashes here. You're not attacking somebody for the person they are. You, you, you can address them for the behaviours that they're demonstrating. So this particular team, this Premier League team I was describing to you, they had a great phrase. They said, uh, you can behave like a dickhead without being one. 
because I you know. can change your behavior. I don't think you're a dickhead, but I think the way you've just behaved is dickheadish. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah. And you can stop behaving like that, but you can't change who you are. And that allowed really productive feedback conversations to take place within their world because it was never about attacking the person. Calling. Yeah, it was yeah. about the behaviors. And when it comes to re- recruitment, then you used the example of Zlatan Ibrahimovic in the book. Yeah. How can you try and use that, um, use those behaviours and use that idea of, of of cultural architects to make sure that you bring the right people into a team? It's obviously can't you can't always get it right, but there must be a way of getting it right, more right than wrong. Yeah. So, the, the, so there's a lovely phrase that they used at Barcelona. Um, there was a man called Cheeky Bagheerstein who was the director of football. He's now at Manchester City doing the same job. But his phrase that he gave me was, talent will get you into the room. Your behaviour will decide if we keep you there or not. So this is I, I love that quote in a cultural context because what he's suggesting is talent is important. You've got to be able to do the job. You've got to have a level of competency and expertise in the first place. So if you're recruiting somebody, the obvious thing, first of all, is to go after, can they do the job that you're asking them to do? Once you've established that that's the case, that's where the behaviours become really key. And if you know what they are, if you're recruiting against the behaviours that define your culture, that then forces you to think about, are you asking the right questions? Are you asking for evidence of those behaviours in action? Yeah. So does that an Amirovich one was a great example where... The three behaviours at Barcelona were humility, hard work, and team first. Now, he was a guy that was renowned for being quite egocentric and making everything about him. So the first warning bell would be, well, he's not a guy that naturally puts the team above his own self-interest. He's a guy that refers to himself in the third person. He wrote a book called I Am Zlatan. So this is not a bloke that demonstrates humility naturally. The hard work bit, I think you can agree that is... He's pretty prodigious in that regard. So there's two out of the three trademark behaviours that as an outsider, you go, hmm, is he really the right fit for you? Yeah. But the club insisted that they did sort of ask him these questions. And again, this is where football's different. You don't get to do interviews and things like that necessarily for a job. You're approaching somebody that's already employed. So it's not the same, but... When you're asking the right questions, they maintained, he said, no, no, I understand what you're recruiting against. You've got me wrong. This is the person I am. They brought him in and he did behave to those three behaviours for his first three months, almost like an induction phase. Yeah. Then when he hit moments of difficulty or setbacks, he went back behaving to type where he became quite difficult to manage. He wouldn't help the team out when they're in injury crisis, things like that. So the club had a choice at that moment. They could either make excuses for him and indulge him because they paid 70 million euros for him. But what they said is, when they were talking about types of culture, they said, if we choose to ignore what he's doing, we move towards a star culture where we make excuses for charismatic, expensive players. Yeah. Or we can move him on because he's demonstrated consistently. He's not demonstrating the behaviours. So... In a pretty unprecedented move in that world, they got rid of him after 10 months. They made a huge financial loss on him. But what the board said was, if we'd have continued with him, the losses would have been far greater over the long term. So we almost needed to bite the bullet and accept we'd made a mistake quickly. So, like you say, 
this isn't a foolproof system. But I think when you're clear about the behaviours you're recruiting people against and you ask them for evidence of it and you test them for it, that gives you some mitigation against just recruiting people because they can do the job. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess it's at a point like that where people probably do look to the leadership of their team or their organisation to be like, well, are those people going to make a tough decision here to align to what they've been saying all along? Yeah. And, and, and call yeah, very out. much. But then that taps in, Nathan, to um, this idea of uh, one of the other pillars of a commitment culture is the role of authentic leadership. Mm. This is where your leaders then start to role model what they're asking everyone else to do. Now, Warren Buffett gives some really good advice here. So the investor from the Berkshire Halfway Group, he says, in a culture, a leader should be assessed on three criteria if they're going to really maximise their impact. First of all, they have to have the energy for the task to lead the culture. The second one is they have to be intelligent enough on the job that they're doing. So that when they speak, they have credibility. Yeah. Now, Buffett's advice is if you only see intelligence and energy, don't hire them because they could be corrosive. They could be assassins to your culture. The third non-negotiable factor that he insists you recruit for is integrity. Do you demonstrate the behaviours? Yeah. Because if nobody follows a hypocrite. Your point is right about if you're in a culture and you see somebody getting away with acting against the behaviours and the bosses turn a blind eye to it, the message is, well, you're a hypocrite. You're not prepared to do what you're asking everyone else to demonstrate. Yeah. And nobody follows hypocrites. So that's why it becomes essential that the leadership buy into this and demonstrate and role model the behaviours themselves. And when it comes to sort of leadership and longevity, one of my colleagues asked me to put this question to you. Right. And it's about once you've got this high performance culture, if that's a, you've developed this commitment culture, what's your take on how long standing those things can be? It feels like when you look in the sporting world, for example, you might see a period of sort of five to 10 years and yeah. then things will take a take a turn and it might return farther down the line. Sure. And I guess the same goes for a lot of businesses. You will see some amazing growth and maturity, but then whatever might, something else might happen, an acquisition or and it'll take a yeah. turn. What's your take on sort of longevity of this type of culture? I think the arc of change helps to answer that question because on the five stages we spoke about, the final stage was the arrival bit where you feel the culture is established. But that's not the end of the journey. That's just the end of that stage of the journey. So this isn't a one. This isn't just a one-hit wonder. This is something that needs to be constantly assessed and monitored. And those behaviours might change over time. That sense of purpose might start to adapt. So think of the the core versus the strategy. You mm-hmm. might have to take a different strategy to execute what the core is. So that might change on a frequent basis, and that's where culture needs to run alongside this and be focused it can't just be relegated to the any other business part of the meeting or it can't be something that you address in a once a year conference and then hope that people remember it so the longevity of it is a really important piece but it but however long you're in business culture should be running alongside your business strategy at the same time yeah that makes sense just to wrap up then with the, the final three questions. Sure. Uh, Damien, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? Oh, wow. I often talk to people around this idea of our beliefs are are, immu- are transferable. So we used to believe in Father Christmas that we don't now. 
Oh, I'm sorry for any listeners that I'm just. Uh, <laughs> I think they're mostly a little bit older yeah. than that. It's fine. <laughs> but so, but that's a really good example of where of um, of where we change beliefs. Um, a big one that I do believe in is that I think um, when we talk about resilience in organisations, um, I think we need. Uh, I used to believe that resilience was about getting through it, about being mentally tough, about being strong and and all those sort of imageries. And I think what I've come to believe over the years is nobody needs to be resilient in the face of kindness and decency and humility and understanding and mm. empathy and all those softer skills. Okay. So when I hear people talk about we want to uh, make our team more resilient, I, I now believe that that is the wrong question because you're, fo- you're basically trying to armour plate people against what sounds like a pretty toxic culture. Yeah. And secondly, if this wasn't your your mission, this shining a light on the power that culture can can have, what would be? I had an unusual uh, background growing up. So I grew up in a boxing gym. Um, so my dad was a boxing coach. So um, I grew up in sort of a world of quite a tough elite sport. Um, but a lot of the people that practice boxing come from quite difficult backgrounds themselves. Um, and I think that's where my interest in sort of um, creating environments for people to flourish uh, emerge from. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been consistent in pretty much everything I've tried to do. So whether it's the consultancy, whether it's the uh, the books that I've been fortunate enough to write, or whether it's the work I've done um, in different mediums, whether it's working on coaching staffs with teams and things like that. I think that's been consistent regardless of it. And I think what I'd say is I was doing that long before I was ever employed to do it. It was always an interest for me. So I I, I think I would find a way of doing that in different ways, whether it was working in schools with kids or volunteering. I think I would find a medium of sort of trying to bring around an influence where people can flourish and enjoy giving their best. Nice. And finally... Uh, bearing in mind the community are already reading the Barcelona way at the moment yeah if you could recommend them another book to read what would it be yeah I mean there's so many out there I think a book that had uh, a real significant impact on me was a book by a psychologist at Virginia University called Jonathan Haidt his his spelling is different it's H-A-I-D-T and he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis where what he did was he he looked at um, a whole series of different religions and cultures, but said, what's the common wisdom that they're all teaching us? And how does that impact on our culture and on our own individual lives? Um, And I'm a huge advocate of that book. I've really enjoyed it. I've gone back and read it a number of times uh, over the years. And I'd I'd recommend that's a good investment of anyone's time. Nice, I'll take a look. Damien, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. So much interesting stuff there. Um, thanks well, thank again. you for inviting me. It's been a real delight to, to meet you in chat knife, but equally anyone that's got this far into the podcast, thank you for investing your time to listen. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the very end. I hope that means you found the show really valuable. If that's the case, do please hit subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes and leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. That feedback is so useful to us. 
The best way to keep in touch with Journey Further on a regular basis is to join the Journey Further book club. Now, this is a fast-growing community designed for time-pressured marketers. We read the best business books, just like Damien Hughes' The Barcelona Way. We share bite-sized insight from each chapter. We host events with the authors. It's completely free to join. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the link to sign up. And finally, if you've got any other ideas, feedback, suggestions of guests who we should try and get on the podcast, do get in touch. My name is Nathan. Just drop me an email, podcast at journeyfurther.com.